Good to see you here tonight. Thanks for coming back this evening for uh, this study in the Word of God. Let me tell you as they're passing these things out, distributing them, uh, where we are headed. One person said to me, that sounded like a climax this morning to the series on um, one another. And uh, that was a very perceptive thought. That, that was the, <laughs> the climax. Uh, we're going to do uh, one more message in that series. Next Sunday we're going to look at Pray for One Another. And I'm using that to introduce some changes that we are going to be uh, initiating within prayer meeting uh, starting the first Wednesday night uh, in September. So I'm going to uh, be talking about some of those changes next Sunday morning and talking about the importance of praying for one another. Then we're going to go back to Matthew uh, in the morning and finish the book as uh, we're out of the prophetic section, which I think is the most difficult to, to handle in terms of handouts and so on. So we're now out of that section and into the uh, last aspects of the Passion Week. So we're going to go back to Matthew in the morning, and I will start a series on prayer in the evening, and uh, talking about prayer and uh, trying to uh, make that more meaningful and helpful for our prayer meeting. So that's where we're, we're headed in the future. Tonight we're looking at a passage of scripture that... Uh, I find interesting. It comes immediately upon the heels of the portion of Scripture we looked at this morning. So this is the very next portion in the book of Matthew, uh, following the section of God's judgment that we looked at this morning. Uh, That's, to me, interesting, because this has, I I think, a a little different uh, flavor. It, It helps us to understand balance in the Christian life, and that is by uh, no means a difficult thing to achieve. That's why I always encourage people to read the Bible through uh, so that uh, we can understand the whole counsel of God, that we don't just camp on one certain aspect of God's Word, but we take it all in perspective, and it does create an interesting balance. Tonight I've titled this A Lesson in Extravagant Worship. Lessons in extravagant worship. And the theme is lessons from a woman's anointing of Jesus. Jesus' anointing by an unnamed woman is enclosed by two brief accounts of people plotting against Jesus. So as Matthew 26 opens, the chief priests and elders are plotting against Jesus to put him to death. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Then we have the account of the woman anointing Jesus, and then we have this. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, plots against Jesus. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. I have here, we are not to miss the contrasts that are evident in the telling of these events. We need to keep these bookends in view. The chief priests and elders plotting to kill Jesus. Judas, plotting to kill Jesus, to turn him over, 
And then in the middle, this story of the woman anointing Jesus. So we're not to miss the contrast. First, there is the contrast of personages. There is a plot to kill Jesus by religious leaders. Those that should have been, and even one who professed to be followers of Jesus. You wouldn't expect that the chief priests, the elders of the people, would be the ones that are plotting to kill Jesus. You wouldn't expect that one of the twelve disciples, one of the twelve apostles, is going to be involved in a plot to kill Jesus. Then we have this unnamed woman who shows this incredible act of devotion to Jesus. You would think that the devotion would have come from the religious leaders and from the disciples. But we have it from this unnamed woman. Now when I say she's an unnamed woman, there is debate as to whether or not this account is the same as the account of Mary's anointing uh, Jesus. I personally think it is. I'm not willing to fight over that, uh, but I I think it probably is the same account. But I'm just going to go primarily on the account that's before us tonight. So one would expect different behaviors from the two groups. Secondly, there... uh, What what did I just say? Uh, Did I say Mary Magdalene? Because I didn't... Good. Because that's not who I meant. Uh, Mary... The sister of Martha, okay, would have been the uh, woman that anointed Jesus. Okay, moving on. Secondly, there's a contrast in value placed on Jesus. Jesus is betrayed for the paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver was equal to about five weeks of pay. The perfume, if it is the same account, is worth a year's Labor. So she's going to pour out a perfume on the body of Jesus that's worth a year's work of labor. Judas is going to betray Jesus for five weeks of pay. Now, somehow you would think that that dastardly deed ought to be worth a little more than that. I mean, to sell Jesus. To put him to death, and all you want in return is five weeks of pay. Uh, that's like ransoming somebody and, and uh, holding them hostage and say, I'll free them for, for five weeks of pay. Who's going to do that? I mean, people ask for millions of bucks. But uh, that's all that Jesus' life and death uh, was worth to Judas. That's interesting. In contrast to these two accounts, or plots to kill Jesus, is an account of an individual who is anointing Jesus in preparation of his burial. Matthew 26, 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she uh, has done it to prepare me for burial. So there's the contrast. Two groups that want to put Jesus to death, and now here's this woman who wants to honor Jesus' death. So there's a contrast. So let's look at the account of the woman's anointing of Jesus. Jesus had apparently been spending his nights during the Passover week with friends. Matthew 26, 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. This is in the middle of Passion Week. 
Matthew 21, 17, which gives us the beginning of this particular time, tells us, and leaving them who went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It seems like it was the normal uh, tendency of Jesus during Passion Week. He came into the city of Jerusalem, ministered, and then left and spent the night with friends. This particular night, he's he's spending in the home of Simon the leper. An unnamed woman comes and anoints Jesus with very expensive perfume. Matthew 26, verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. The disciples were upset by what the woman had done. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were indignant. Uh, it means that they were, they were upset. They were angered by what this woman had done. Now, what angered them? The disciples viewed it as a waste of money. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Why this waste? Why would you take this perfume that's worth a year's worth of labor and pour it on the body of Jesus? What a waste. The disciples thought that the money could have been put to much better use. Matthew 26, verse 9. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, if the other passage is indeed a parallel passage, we know that Judas starts that, and we know that Judas is a crook. So Judas isn't concerned about the poor. He's concerned about stealing the money. But the rest of the disciples don't want to steal the money, and they join in. And so in our passage, what we're focusing on is the other 11. And the other 11 buy into the idea that this is a waste. In order to use this perfume in this way, it should have been given to the poor. Money, uh, perfume sold, money given to the poor. Now in all fairness, if you think about the scriptures, there is much in the word of God, about being concerned for the poor. The passage that we read this morning, talking about nakedness and the poor and those that are hungry and thirsty, and if you do this to the least of one of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me, it would be easy to extrapolate from that that, yeah, why not sell this and give it to the poor? Because if you're doing that, you're doing it for Jesus. It's not that far-fetched. But Jesus defends the woman's actions. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? All right? So they're getting on her case. The disciples are finding fault with this woman. They're saying, Woman, you blew it. What a waste. Here you are pouring this perfume on Jesus. You could have sold that perfume and given it to the poor. That would have been the right thing to do. So they are on her case. But Jesus comes to her defense. And he does so with these three ways. First, Jesus defends the woman by saying that what she did was a good thing. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful. 
It's good, it's appropriate, and more than that, it is, it is glorious. It's a beautiful thing. I'm going to come back to that, but it's a beautiful thing. Jesus defends the woman by saying that you will always have opportunity to help the poor, but you will not always have this opportunity to anoint Jesus. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Right? I'm about to die. I'm about to die. And she wants to express her love for me in a unique and particular way before I die. You're always going to have this opportunity to help the poor. Next, Jesus defends the woman by saying that this woman did was an appreciation for Jesus' death. In pouring this anointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. It is that statement that primarily, in my mind, equates this account with the anointing of Mary. For what is unusual is, and I've said it many times on Easter, the only person in the whole New Testament that seems to get the death and resurrection of Jesus is Mary. And Mary's the one who's been sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary has been saving this ointment for his burial. If you remember, Lazarus dies. Lazarus being the brother of Mary and Martha. And she doesn't even use the perfume to anoint her brother's body because she's saving it to anoint Jesus. All this time, she's been saving up to anoint the body of Jesus. But because of the resurrection of Lazarus and the interaction that she has with Jesus and Jesus saying that uh, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And uh, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Etc. She came to believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. He's, she's the only one who gets it. And realizing now that she's not going to be able to anoint the body of Jesus, says, I'm going to use this perfume while I can. I'm going to anoint Jesus' body. And she's absent when they go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus because she knows he's not going to be there and she doesn't have any oil. Jesus said she has done this. Okay? So in this account, we have the religious leaders, the, 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 the chief priests, the rulers and the elders who are plotting against Jesus. And don't even know that he is going to rise from the dead. Then we have Judas, who's plotting against Jesus to bring about his death. And then we have the rest of the apostles who aren't plotting his death, but are not anticipating the resurrection. Remember, they're forewarned. They're upset when they hear the account that Jesus risen from the dead. They don't believe it. So here is this incredible scene of one person... Who gets it? And Jesus says, let her alone. Because she has done this in preparation for my burial. Jesus says, you will not always have me with you. 
There is an unmistakable tone of sadness in that statement. But the disciples did not appreciate that. They didn't get that. In fact, on the very night in which he's going to be betrayed, in the very night that Jesus is going to be taken captive, they are celebrating the Last Supper together. They're celebrating communion together. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And not thinking about the fact that Jesus is about to die and to die for them. It goes on to say, what this woman has done will always be remembered as a statement for all ages of the significance and appropriateness of what this woman has done. Matthew 26, 13. I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In order to exalt her, in order to praise her. Okay? When, wherever the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told. She should not be rebuked, but praised. Likewise, such acts of extravagant worship should not be rebuked, but praised even unto this very day. For it tells us in verse 13, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. So there is a universal application here. This is not cultural. This is not Jewish. This is not limited to a particular era or period of time. This isn't just about when Jesus lived. This isn't just about the last few days before he dies. This story has significance for all time in every place in the world, according to what Jesus just said. So what is that significance? And what is that application for all time? Lessons here we learn about the complexities of life. As I just said, Jesus had just taught on the importance of caring for the poor and the needy. In fact, as we consider this morning, to care for the poor and needy of God's people is to care for Jesus himself. The passage that comes just before this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers... And that is an important statement. It's not just the poor in general, but those who belong to the body of Christ. You did it to me. Thus, issues of service and worship ought to be discussed thoughtfully, carefully, and worshipfully. Number two, the world views much of what we do as Christians as a waste. We must rise above the world's view. All right? uh, if there is no resurrection, then it is true. What we do in our service and love for God is, in fact, worthless. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen says, Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time. We are wasting our money. We're wasting our resources. We're wasting our effort. You are wasting this evening in gathering together if Christ didn't rise. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. But he did rise. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is not a waste. It is, 
it is valuable because he did rise. Number three, we must guard against the Christian worldview that is merely pragmatic. Now I have a quote from uh, Alexander McLaren. Alexander McLaren lived from 1826 to 1910. So uh, an older source, and I chose it purposefully as an older source. But further, Christ defends the side of Mary's deed, which the critics fastened on. They posed as being more practical and benevolent than she was. They were utilitarians. She was wasteful. We hear the same sort of taunt today. What is the sense of all this money being spent on missions and religious objects? How much more useful it would be if expended on better dwellings for the poor, or hospitals, or technical schools? But there is a place in Christ's treasury for useless deeds if they are the pure expression of love to him. And Mary's alabaster box, which did no good at all, lies beside the cups that held cold water, which slacked some thirsty lips. Uncalculating impulse, which only knows that it would fain give all to the lover of souls, is not merely excused, but praised by Jesus. Lovers on earth do not concern themselves about the usefulness of their gifts, and the divine lover rejoices over what cold-blooded spectators, who do not in the least understand the ways of loving hearts, finds useless waste. The word world would put all the emotions of Christian hearts and all the heroisms of Christian martyrs and all the sacrifices of Christian workers into the same class. Jesus accepts them all, quote, unquote. Similar arguments have been made down through the ages regarding the extravagance versus wastefulness of worship. Today, today, in some circles, the extravagance of church buildings is an issue. It is not uncommon to read that a sanctuary devoted solely to the purpose of worship that cannot double as an all-purpose room has been dubbed by many as wasteful. It is a poor use of money. Why would you want to build a building that's only going to be used once or twice a week? What a waste to have a costly room that is going to be occupied but once or twice a week. Much better to have a building that can be a worship center on Sundays and a gymnasium on Tuesdays. Often said. There is a difference between a sanctuary and auditorium. A sanctuary is a holy place from the Latin sanctus, meaning holy or separate. A place to set apart, to hear from God through his word. Okay? Um, I, I, just by way of observation, I, I find it interesting, I think, that there are correlations to be had in um, the views of sanctuaries, of worship, etc., and the preaching of the Word of God. I talked a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, and I, and I said in a liturgical church you will find two pulpits, one on a lower level, one on a higher level. The higher level is where the Word of God is preached. The lower level is where singing or uh, uh, even the reading of Scripture sometimes is taking place. But the higher place is reserved for um, the uh, preaching of the Word. I, I don't think that it's a mere coincidence that in a day and age where preaching is out of season and, in fact, sermons are getting shorter and shorter, etc., that to think of having a 
room dedicated to the preaching of the word of God is a waste. Why would you want to do that? Uh, why would you, you want to have a place that's set apart just for that when you could be using the money to build a gymnasium or better yet to give to the poor and to minister to others outside? So there'd be a lot that would say a building in general is a waste. Better to rent. Better to meet in houses. Moving on. The great cathedrals represented an era of extravagant worship as opposed to the storefront churches of today. Now, don't misunderstand me. That does not mean that there is anything wrong with a storefront church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a storefront church. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with meeting in houses. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But on the other hand, what I am saying is there's nothing wrong with extravagant worship. There is nothing wrong with a people that want to express their love and appreciation for God by having something that is uniquely an expression of that devotion and commitment to Christ. As I say, the great cathedrals. You know, you you go to Europe, you think of the Sistine Chapel, you you think of the the paintings of Michelangelo. Uh, A different era. We live in an era of pragmatism and utilitarianism. They lived in an era of of majesty and beauty. Back to this word, what she did for me was beautiful. A lot of people think that what is beautiful is wasteful. But beauty that is intended to express love and appreciation for God is, in fact, a beautiful and appropriate thing. Certainly, the example of extravagant worship abounds in the scriptures. The building of the ornate tabernacle to the costly and magnificent temple to the rebuilding of the temple are all examples of extravagant worship. Now, think with me for a moment. Think with me about the tabernacle, right? We know that that was extremely costly. Everything's golden, overlaid, right? The uh, curtains that were woven, the perfume that the priest wore. Uh, Think about that tabernacle, okay? You got it in, in, in view? How many people saw the inside of that tabernacle. Okay, one saw the holy place. Okay, where the Ark of the Covenant is, the high priest. The rest, it was only the priests who serviced the tabernacle. The people never even saw it. What a waste. Why in the world would you spend all that time, effort, and gold to create furniture that hardly anybody is even ever going to see. Now you get to the temple, and at least people see that. At least people can partake of that. Now they, they can't go into the most holy place. Okay, but, but they can at least go on the outside and they can see the pillars and they can see the gold. So at least when we get to the temple, 
At least you get to see that. But the tabernacle, you don't. And yet, it is God who tells them to do that. And the reason is, of course, because there was nobody poor at the time. Right? No. No. Now, am I saying that every church has to be ornate and beautiful? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, don't just take things at face value. Because there are a lot of people that are touting a purely utilitarian view towards worship. There is to be an element of beauty. Where that all works out is an interesting discussion. It is a difficult thing. All I'm saying is have a balance. Have a balance. Next time somebody says to you, wow, you are doing wrong, some people would even say you're sinning. Even as the apostles were saying, you're wrong. You should have given this to the poor. There are people who are saying that very same thing today. Just understand, okay? One thing I would plead with you is read not only the whole Bible through, but read from different eras of church history. And it really helps in gaining a bigger perspective on how limited we are in the day and age in which we live, okay? Uh, There tends to be swings of the pendulum, Okay, And to be honest, in the, in the medieval period, in the building of the cathedrals, it probably had swung in such a degree that there wasn't a concern for the poor. And there wasn't a concern. And there was monasteries. And there wasn't a concern about reaching out. It's hard to get the balance. But down, if you read through the ages, it's helpful to get the balance. I'm going to, once again, okay, just recommend to you The Imitation of Christ, written by Thomas Akempis, 1410 A.D. But it's a wonderful perspective on how the Christian life was viewed in 1410 and how different that is in 2016. We could learn from some of the stuff that was valued in 1410. And they could have learned from some of the stuff that we value in 2016. Life is not simple. It is not easy. Moving on with this handout. God called upon his people not to be concerned with their own possessions above the worship of himself. Haggai 1-2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The book of Haggai is written when the children of Israel had returned, but the, the temple had not yet been rebuilt. They put it on hold. And so Haggai, the prophet, was sent to get this building project moving again. So Haggai 1-2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Is it time for you to live in luxury at the same time that my house lies in ruins. You know, there, <clears throat> there are a lot of well-meaning and legitimate people that are very concerned with uh, 
the right use of money and have a utilitarian approach, which I appreciate and I understand fully. Okay? But at the same time, there are people that are willing to expend monies on other things, but they're not willing to expend them on religious things or on church things. So, next line. This has relevance to the tithes and offerings of today. Uh, by all of the material that uh, I have seen, uh, Christians aren't tithing. Christians aren't tithing. Uh, they're not bringing their monies to the storehouse. Okay, We probably have greater uh, amounts of expendable income than any other time in our history. And yet, charitable giving is down. Churches are struggling for, for finances. You know, people were willing to make great commitments to put up structures, to build buildings. I'm speaking to the choir here. We went through this building project, and a lot of people were willing to give and give sacrificially so that we have what I think is a beautiful sanctuary and a beautiful facility. It would be nice to have a gymnasium. It would be nice to have these other things that would be utilitarian as well. It also would be good to give to the poor. All these things are good. All I'm saying to you tonight is think about it. Just think about it. And how we use our finances. And how we view God and our relationship to him. Number four, it is part of our being to want to lavish gifts on those whom we love. It's a statement of our appreciation and devotion. McLaren again. But further, Christ defends the side of Mary's deeds which the critics fastened on. They posed as being more practical and benevolent than she was. They were utilitarians. She was wasteful. Their objection sounds sensible, but it belongs to the low levels of life. One flash of lofty love would have killed it. I love that statement. One flash of lofty love would have killed it. Might be a bad analogy. But let me ask you, how many of you that are married gave your fiancé a diamond ring? What a waste! Why would you take that hard-earned money that you could have used to put down on a down payment of a house or used to put on a car or, or used for something so much more practical and valuable could have bought her an iron, a sewing machine. But you buy a diamond ring. Why do we do that? Why do we purchase flowers? It is an expression of love. It's an expression of wanting to give to someone out of a sense of glorious appreciation. The heart of this passage was this woman thought about Jesus' death. And when everybody else is plotting to kill Jesus, 
where everyone else is, excuse me, not everyone else is plotting to kill Jesus, when there are those that are plotting to kill Jesus and willing to do so for just five weeks' wages, when there are others who are impervious to Jesus' death and think that it's a waste for what she's doing, this woman says, he's dying for me. And she wants to express her love and her appreciation by giving to him. And he accepts that. And he commends it. There are people that believe that it is good to try to raise up an edifice that speaks of their love and their value and concern for the word of God, for Christ, for his church, and it should not be belittled. Nor should we find fault with those that are worshiping in storefronts. Just think about the bigger pictures. Get a bigger view. Realize how often we just truncate the word of God rather than take an overarching view. Remember the tabernacle. Remember the temple. Remember extravagant worship in this whole discussion. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and Help us, Lord, to be willing to give of ourselves, our time, our resources, in a day and age that is more and more viewing, doing anything for Christ as a waste, doing anything for the church as a waste. Gathering together for worship is a waste. Better to spend the time home alone with your family than to gather to hear the word of God. It is the day and age in which we live. Lord, help us to appreciate extravagant worship at the same time, Lord, uh, we try to uh, weave into our understanding all of what your word teaches us. Give us a concern for the poor. Give us a concern for using our monies wisely. Uh, Lord, help us to balance all of Christian life. And Lord, help us from being judgmental of one another as we have varying convictions of these things. And thank you, Lord Jesus, as you taught us that this woman is to be venerated and we are to speak well of her in every generation and in every location. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.